Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram 2.0 podcast. I'm Beatrice Chestnut. And I'm Uranio Pais. And today, we're talking about the 27 Enneagram subtypes. Yes, I'm glad to be talking about this because this has a very central role on Enneagram theory and practice. Yes, we work with the subtypes in everything we do. Even when you teach introductory workshops, you bring up the, the theme, right? Yes, a lot of people say the Enneagram subtypes is too much to bring in too early because it's, it's a more complex level. However, I think they're so important at times you can't really talk about the nine types without them. For instance, it's hard for me to talk about one six because the three sixes are so different from one another. Also about fours and right. some other types. Provide a very short and concise but good description of each of the 27 uh, subtypes. But first, we'll do a kind of introduction to subtypes. We'll talk about our approach and where it comes from. We'll and talk how our approach is different from others. And some of the introductory terms and things you need to know to understand what subtypes are, why they're important, uh, and how they can help you grow. Right, right. And we are right now in Palo Alto, the city that you were born uh, in. Right, yeah. yes. This is my hometown of Palo Alto, and we're here because we're doing one of our five-day professional workshops. And we talk a lot about subtypes in there. Yes. Yeah. And we are also doing uh, our Retreat B, the Transformational Enneagram, in which we do you know, very deep work on helping people deconstruct both instincts and subtypes. Right, looking at the shadows connected mm. to instincts and subtypes. And that'll be about two hours north of here, uh, about mm. a week from now. Yes, very nice. Yes. It's always great to be in California, B. Yes, yes. I like it. It was a wonderful place to grow up. And it's also ground zero for a lot of the Enneagram work. Right. And right now, so many people in here know the Enneagram. Yes. It's in towns like this it's, one. Yes. We're also in the middle, middle of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think is great about this area is so many people here are interested in the Enneagram. Yeah. You, you have been working with several business clients who come from the Silicon Valley, very well-known brands. Right, right. Great. So why be? Why talking about subtypes? Well, I think they're very important because they add a whole deeper level of complexity. In fact, they're more nuanced nuanced uh, descriptions of the nine types. It's a little bit like if you're going to use the Enneagram as a map for your self-development, you might as well have the best, most detailed, most nuanced map. Now, the 27 subtypes are basically three versions of each of the nine types, and they add a lot in terms of uh, more specific information about both how the different subtypes pay attention and what their unconscious patterns are, but also what their distinct growth paths are. Right. But so I see B, that some uh, behavioral tendencies of people of... Um, one particular subtype of one particular type sometimes are not described in books correctly. Yes, I would say the number one most important reason to know about the subtypes is it helps you find your type. And of course, typing is a tricky process when you learn the Enneagram. And I think you can't really understand the magic and power of the Enneagram until you find your type. 
Yeah, and I'm particularly concerned with people who I think may be mistyped because they don't know subtypes. Right. When you don't know these 27 more nuanced categories, sometimes you don't find your type because some of the descriptions in the books are uh, of the nine types really only focus on one of the subtypes of the three. And, yeah. and, and I think it's just because this approach, which was developed by Claudio Naranjo, the one we will be presenting, the one that we use in everything we do, uh, a lot of people didn't have access to it until about after 2004. Even Because Claudio Naranjo stayed somehow alienated from the American uh, Enneagram community Uh, from the mid-70s, let's say. Right. So a little bit of history. I think it's important to know that, in my view, Claudio Naranjo is really the seminal, the most important author of the modern Enneagram types, the nine types. He learned them, of course, from Oscar Echazo. That, that happened in the very late uh, 60s and early 70s. Right. And then he brought what he learned from Oscar Echazo to Berkeley, where he was from in California. Well, actually, Claudio was Chilean, South American like I am, but he lived in Berkeley. Yeah. You're South American, but not yeah. Chilean, of course. Yes. And uh, <laughs> Oscar Echazo was Bolivian. Yes. But then he lived in here. And he brought it here. Right. Now, Claudio was trained as a psychiatrist in, in America, and he was a, a, a big figure in the human potential movement. He worked with Fritz Perls and was especially Gestalt. a well-known teacher in the Gestalt movement, in Gestalt psychotherapy. Yes. Yeah, so Claudio started gathering people and investigating more about the nine types and really Uh, uh, building all all the the understanding of the 27 subtypes and but you know whoever studied the Enneagram in America or uh, through books anywhere else uh, from Americans um, didn't know much about his approach until 2004 well what I think what happened is he elaborated the nine types in the 70s and 80s yes. through his groups and through working with people and the the, the modern Enneagram legal out from those groups and and were really based on his descriptions that he elaborated based on what he learned from Echazo. However, what happened is he was kind of pissed off about the way the Enneagram leaked out and the way it was being used in America. I remember one time one of his colleagues said they, they thought that the Enneagram was McDonaldized in the, <laughs> in the American Enneagram community. In other words, it was used a bit superficially and Sometimes he said, I had heard him say that people would learn it and then go teach it a little bit too quickly, as if they were more interested in selling it than they were interested in using it really for deep personal transformation, right. which is, of course, what it's for. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. At, at the same time, I want to say that uh, if it were not for uh, the Enneagram, uh, the American Enneagram teachers and the first books, maybe the Enneagram wouldn't have grown as it did. And I'm, I think that many teachers brought very important knowledge. And in the very beginning, it was still a very rough uh, system and it not very clear. It's still being uh, understood little by little and unveiled. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, Claudio Naranjo's work 
um, should have been put aside because it's very seminal, as you say. And in subtypes theory, it's essential. I think that his approach is by far the best. And I'm very glad you got that from uh, the beginning when you saw him first time in 2004, right? Right. I, I agree with you. I think uh, we, you know, we owe a debt to a lot of the American teachers and authors because I think it was really the moment for the Enneagram to get out there in the West. Uh, and they did a big service by writing very good books uh, about the Enneagram and, and really excellent descriptions of the nine types. However, I think the Enneagram is something that we are continuing to unveil. Yeah. Uh, it has so much encoded in it. And I think uh, one of the mistakes I see people make is thinking we're kind of at the end of the story, mm. like the nine types are, are, are all we need to know. I think another mistake is when people think they are inventing something related to the Enneagram. I think the Enneagram is a discovery rather than an invention. Yes, I, I agree. I think we're rediscovering the Enneagram in our era uh, in important ways. So, But it's important to know that that Naranjo, in in the sort of modern history of the Enneagram, he, because he didn't like what was going on in the U.S., he taught more in Europe and South America and Central America. So what he developed in terms of the subtypes, he refined over many years, in some ways isolated from the mainstream Enneagram movement that was in some ways uh, based in the U.S., especially in the early years. I think there is a phenomenon, BC, if you agree with me or not. Uh, there is a phenomenon in the Enneagram community worldwide that uh, people do, you know, different teachers and schools do different investigations, different approaches, and they, they come to different understanding uh, of uh, things related to the Enneagram. I personally really like that because... Uh, the Enneagram doesn't have one owner only or a copyright or just one source of information. And many people produce new materials and we get these uh, beautiful conferences in many places uh, where we can discuss and contrast. Now, uh, at the same time, there are different levels of quality and there are approaches that get too different. So I think that uh, on subtypes, this is where the different approaches got the most different uh, uh, in the Enneagram field. And, uh, you know, we are going to talk today about what we believe is the best approach. Right. And I need to name one of my biases, and that is I was trained as an academic. So when you're, when you're working in a university and you're an academic, you're taught to look for the most central or seminal author. Like, what are the roots of whatever you're studying? Where did they come from? And so Claudio Naranjo is very important to me because I think he's just the most important author in the modern era in terms of the definition of the types and the subtypes. Right. At the same time, B, I think that Naranjo did not talk much about instincts. Right. And I think that both things are important. You and I have this challenge and, you know, um, goal of talking about both. But today we're going to talk more about subtypes. Can we just differentiate them um, a little bit in, in this beginning podcast? Uh, instincts are just belly-based, while subtypes are belly and heart. They are a mix of instinctual drives with the type's emotional patterns, or what we call the passions, which are more emotional vices. 
So we're defining terms here. Yes. And it's important to define what an instinct is versus what a subtype is. Because when I travel around teaching this, I see a lot of people mix up these two terms. Yeah. And I think one of the one reason for that is that, you know, the instincts are there's three instincts according to this Enneagram model that three, we work with. Three instincts that are covered by the Enneagram approaches. Right. Of course there are many instincts. There are more than just three, but but for the for the purposes of personality and the way personality manifests these three these three clusters or three drives three central drives seem to be the most important one for self-preservation one for social instinct a kind of getting along with the herd or the group uh, and one that's a sexual instinct, which we sometimes call one-to-one, -one, that's about sort of one-to-one -one bonding, both for the reproduction of the species, the perpetuation of, of the species, and also for companionship, for survival through bonding with another. Yeah, but mostly in the, the body level, like attraction. Exactly. So we're t when we're talking about instincts, we're talking about the animal wisdom in us. But you're right that subtypes need to be understood as not the same thing as instincts, but that a combination of the dominant instinct and the emotional patterns of the type, and specifically the emotional passion, which is the a central emotional motivation that drives the character structure that the Enneagram is shaped around, uh, but it tends to be very unconscious. Now, we won't go too much into passion today, but it's important to know that the 27 subtypes are simply three versions of each of the nine types based on which of one of these three instinctual drives dominates your experience. Yes, and they are very different from one another because they represent different ways that that emotional pattern that gets played out in life. Right. Right. Now, it's important to say that uh, some schools and teachers talk about instincts, but not subtypes. Some talk about subtypes and not instincts. And we try to talk about both. Right. Today, we won't talk about instincts, only subtypes. Right. Another difference is I think some talk about both. They talk about instincts and subtypes, but I think their, their descriptions of the subtypes aren't very... They, 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 there's not a lot of words to them, let's put it that way. You can sum it up in a short paragraph. Right. Whereas Claudia Naranjo's uh, description of the subtypes, at least the ones I learned uh, when he came to uh, one of our international conferences in 2004 and taught sort of what maybe the American community, the international community based in this American conference, his version of the 27 subtypes, I found them to be a lot different than the subtypes that I had learned about from 1990 when I learned the Enneagram to to that date in 2004. Yeah, I also remember that day. And uh, I'm so glad that you did all the adaptations that you did in your teachings and studies. And then you wrote a book uh, about that, especially to spread the word of what Claudio had researched, right? Right, right. So should we talk about what's really important about the subtypes or should I tell my story of how I came to study the subtypes? I would love if you could subtypes. share your story of what happened with you in 2004 and there on. Okay. Yeah. I, I often say I, I never set out to be someone who studied the subtypes or focused a lot on the subtypes. As I was saying, 
you know, from the first 14 years I knew the Enneagram, um, I actually didn't like the subtypes as a topic of discussion in the Enneagram world because I found them to be vague. I found them their, their descriptions that were out there not to be as robust as those of the nine types. I couldn't find my own subtype and I couldn't really see, frankly, how you could use the subtypes for growth. It just seemed to me like there wasn't much there there. So in 2004, when Claudio was invited to teach the subtypes to this conference of about 350 people, I was... You and I were on the board of the uh, International Enneagram Association at that time when we invited him up. Yes. So we interacted with him and his, he brought about 15 of his associates from around the world, teachers that taught with him all the time to help him teach this large group of people at the conference, the subtypes. And I was really surprised by the way he described the 27 subtypes because he... So was I. Yeah. He described them in so much more, with so much more information, adding so much more to what I had heard described before. And then it seems you went on a crusade to uh, (laughs) study that more and write about it because Claudio hadn't written about it. Well, what happened is I learned so much about myself by learning my subtype through Claudio and his and his associates at that conference. So you you actually found out your subtype then. Is this correct? They helped me see that I was a self-preservation too, which I never knew before. I sort of thought I was a one-to-one or a sexual too, but I was pretty clear I didn't really know because I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand the subtypes. Tell us tell us a bit more about what was your process uh, in that conference. So uh, they had us write down what subtype we thought we were, and I wrote well, I think I'm a sexual too, but I really don't know. And one of Claudio's associates came up to me and said, well, we think you're a self a self-preservation too. And I was really surprised by this, especially because the day before, Claudio had described all 27. So in like one set, one long session, he had gone through and described all 27. And I remember very distinctly, he said the self-preservation too was a childlike too. And it was so funny because if there had been a thought bubble above my head when he said that, in the thought bubble, it would have said, oh, well, that's not me. I can count that one out because I'm not childlike. I, I can't be a self-preservation too. That doesn't describe me. Um, now, of course, later I was to discover that was my pride at work, which is, of course, is the passion of type two. Uh, but so when they told me I was a self-preservation too, I questioned it and I actually saw myself getting a bit defensive. Like I felt a little offended that they thought I was childlike and I didn't see this in myself at all. So let that be a lesson to you when you're listening to this that you may need to notice if you don't like the description of your subtype because it's more unconscious. Like feeling offended can be just pride feeling hurt. Right. right? In, and, in your case as a two. Exactly. And, and all people have those defenses against seeing what the subtype is because it's it's even more unconscious than other parts of type. Right. So even if you're not two and you don't have pride, you might get defensive when you read one of the subtypes that's actually yours because it might not sound good. It might not sound like something that you want to be. And certainly that was that way for me. I did not want to see myself as childlike. Uh, but when I asked the guy, 
I mean, luckily, I had been in therapy for a while, so I, I, I saw myself getting defensive and being closed-minded, and I decided, okay, I needed to take down the wall. I needed to open up and really listen. Why did they think I was that subtype, and could I really just understand more about it? So I asked him, why do you think I'm a self-preservation too? And it was amazing what he said to me. He stood next to me. I think he was from Italy, and he said, when I stand next to you like this, I do not think you're going to protect me. I think I need to protect you. And it was amazing because I wanted to argue with him, but I couldn't because I felt the truth of what he was saying in my whole body. Even just thinking of it now, I still, um, I, I can still feel uh, the profound nature of discovering that truth. And of course, not really being that happy about it, but of really seeing the truth of it, that there was a way that I wasn't seeing that I needed protection, that I was more fearful than I thought I was. And how did that impact your inner work and your quest, you know, your psychotherapy and spiritual development? It was really a revolution in my personal growth journey. It was, it, it changed everything because I realized how fearful I was and that I didn't see I was fearful. I was repressing fear as, as we choose repress emotions. Yeah, also because nobody talked about fear related to choose at that point. Exactly. Fear wasn't really a two thing. And I certainly didn't relate that much to it. But when I told my therapist at the time that I realized that I was much more fearful than I thought I was, he was so relieved. He said, wow, you finally figured it out. He And he reflected that every time when he went to the waiting room to get me for our session, he said, you look terrified. Do you want to know a secret? What? That first times I saw you at the IEA board when we were just meeting each other, I thought you were very fearful. Mm. I would see some fear in your eyes. Yes. And I would question myself, is she really a two? I thought you could be a six. But this is out of a lack of understanding that I had about subtypes at that time. Right. And you're not the only one who questioned me and asked even asked me are you sure you might not be a six because I did have a wall up I was um, not exactly only connecting with people like twos do for me uh, I, I part of me wanted to connect with people but part of me was afraid of what that would mean mm -hmm. and it's it also explained a lot about how I often didn't and don't relate to a lot of the more what I see as simplistic definitions of twos out there as always helping and always giving and just looking for people who have needs that they can meet. For me, I always felt profoundly ambivalent about helping and giving and meeting people's needs. There was a part of me, well, for me, the big thing about being a two is, is being liked. Mm -hmm. And it's being liked, loved, approved of. And for me, sometimes, Helping, supporting others is a vehicle to being liked. It's a way to get liked. But if I didn't have to help or give, I wouldn't. And frankly, there were a lot of times when I withdrew uh, or would kind of run or walk away from someone because I didn't want to meet their needs and I didn't want to be the helpful person. Yeah. So you've just mentioned, B, the, um, you know, the fact that a self-pressed chew like you is ambivalent. And I think that this has to do with the fact that uh, self-pressed choose the counter type of choose. And each number has a counter type. And it has to do with someone of the type who is more ambivalent because there is a, a drive coming 
from the instinctual side saying something and the passion of type or the heart's tendency goes the other way. So the person is naturally more ambivalent in the inside. Is this true? Is this how you see it? Yes, and I do think it's important to talk about countertypes. What is it? Can well, you define it? Before we do that, I wonder if it would be important to talk about why subtypes are so important to study. Yes, please. There are a few good reasons. One is it helps with typing mm -hmm. because it's like it gives us more nuanced categories and more categories, 27 instead of nine, which to look at when we're looking at at a way of discovering who we are. Another thing is that the 27 characters describe uh, types that aren't found in the nine types. For instance, self-preservation four, self-preservation two, social seven, social nine. When I learned about these subtypes, I was completely shocked because they are descriptions of types I had never heard of before and really weren't included in any descriptions of the Enneagram nine types. And when I started teaching this, and by the way, you're right that when I learned this type, I went on a mission to study everything I could about Naranjo's approach because I really thought that I wanted everyone to have access to this subtype teaching because it helped me so much. And what I saw is after that conference where Naranjo taught the 27 subtypes, it was as if it didn't happen. People didn't start teaching his approach. It didn't seem like it really affected the way subtypes were taught in general. So I went on a mission to learn everything I could. And I really wrote the complete Enneagram so that I could actually bring Naranjo's work back to the center of Enneagram conversations and his version of subtypes to more people. Um, so getting back to why the subtypes are more important. Yeah, just, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's it's because there are types described, like the self-preservation four, that aren't contained in the nine types. Now, if you're a self-preservation four, you aren't in the Enneagram. If you're just looking at a lot of the descriptions of the nine types, your type is not there. And even potentially, if you've asked uh, teachers, they they told you that you may you might be of another type. Right. You might be a three or a one. And as I started going around teaching workshops on Naranjo's approach to the subtypes, I found it every every time I taught it, someone, two or three people at the workshop would find themselves as self-preservation fours or self-preservation threes or other types that they didn't know because this description was not available. Yeah, I, I want to stress another reason why I believe um, knowing about subtypes is, is uh, important. Um, I sometimes see that people of the same type, when they have different subtypes, have opposite paths of growth. Not only different, but opposite. People of different subtypes within one type can be extremely different in terms of the challenges they have to work on themselves. Right. So I think what you're saying points to two different important factors in terms of in why the subtypes are so important to study. One is that each has a distinct growth path. All 27 have distinct growth paths. So let's say you're a coach and you're working with a four. You might say, oh, well, when I'm working with a four, I should do this. Well, one four needs one thing, but a different subtype of four needs something completely different, as you're saying. Another reason why it's important to know the subtypes is because I think the subtypes provide the best reason why two people of one type can look so different. I think before this approach to the subtypes, uh, 
the people would turn to wings to describe why two people of some one type look different. And wings are the two lateral types. If we look at the Enneagram symbol and, and see the circle. So B is a two and her wings can be one and three. And I'm a five and my wings are four and six. So what you're saying is that before knowing more about the subtypes, we would think that the differences would come from us having different uh, dominant wings, while the subtypes explain better those differences for you and me in, in our vision, right? Right, exactly. I often say the wings were made to carry the load that subtypes carry a lot better in terms of describing the differences among people of the same type. Right. Uh, great explanations about the importance. Now, uh, one of um, the three subtypes of each type we call a countertype. What is that B? Yes, and it's important to know countertypes because they're the types I think that most often get mistyped. Mm -hmm. But what a countertype is, is for each of the nine types, there are three distinct versions based on which of one of these instincts is dominant. And in each group of three, one type kind of goes against the flow of the main type. Two, two of the subtypes kind of go with the flow of the type, with the flow of the passion, and one goes in the other direction. It doesn't mean that um, the strength of the passion or the emotional tendency is uh, not as big as in the other cases. It's as problematic as everybody else's. But, you know, the end behavior is more ambivalent. Right. Right. And I, th I w the example I always use is that everybody knows about the countertype of type six. Right. Everyone knows. Most people know who study the Enneagram. We used to call it a counterphobic. Right. I was just going to say the counterphobic six is the most famous of the countertypes because we know that fear with fear, there are different ways of reacting to fear. Right. There's fight or flight or seek protection and fight or flight. Uh, are are two really opposing reactions to fear. And the sexual six in this version is the counterphobic six. And the counterphobic six is a six that goes against fear with strength. So it's pretty clear why that is a counterphobic type and it is the countertype of the three sixes. They don't avoid risks. They go for risk just to see what's in there. Right? right. You don't run away when you're afraid. You actually move toward the source mm -hmm. of fear. So that's counterphobic. And of course... But it's still fear the same way. Exactly. However, the counterphobic six is the six that's usually not very aware of fear and mm -hmm. goes against it because the sexual instinct in this case is, you know, kind of going against the fearfulness that wants, uh, the, the fear, the, the influence of fear that makes you want to move away. So the counter type means that all other A types also have one that's different. Yes, that's a counter type that where the the movement, some, some key movement of the type pattern is going in opposition uh, to the flow of the passion or the focus of the type. So when you describe for us in a minute um, the 27B, don't forget to tell us what is the counter type of each type. Okay. So should we move on and provide the description? Sure. Let's do that. Three subtypes of type 8. The self-preservation 8 is an 8 that focuses on material security. It's an 8 that 
is sometimes called satisfaction or survival. It's an eight that sees the a direct path from A to B in terms of getting his or her needs met. It's, a, it's an eight that is a little more self-contained, uh, a little more five-ish, doesn't need to talk a lot or communicate about what he's doing, just kind of goes, gets what he wants, is really good at bargaining and bartering and getting the upper hand over anyone. The social eight. Just before you move on to social eight, I'd like to say that in general, the um, growth path for self-press eights, we could understand as being, uh, being less concrete, less practical, and a little less concerned with uh, survival. Thank you. The social eight is an eight that's much more oriented toward protection. It's an eight that is the counter type because it's an it's an antisocial social type. Uh, it's rebellious and uh, focuses on strength and power, just like all eights. However, the social eight is much more about supporting people. They tend to be good mentors in the workplace and very oriented toward protection. It's, a, it's like a fr more friendly, mellow eight. It's an eight that is a good leader, an eight that supports others, an eight that can even look like a two sometimes. It's the eight, the child that becomes, becomes violent or tough in protecting the mother from the father. They're really oriented toward stepping in and using their power and strength to support people who need it. Um, I'd say that the growth path for social aids is more stopping taking care of people all the time and allowing to be taken care of. Right. Get, letting their own inner child be supported and cared for in the same way they take care of others. So the sexual eight or the one-to-one -one eight is an eight that is focused on power and control. This eight likes to be the center of everything. This eight is someone who is more magnetic, more charismatic, the biggest rebel, someone who is out there in front saying they don't need to follow the rules. Uh, it's an eight that likes to have everybody's attention to control what's going on, uh, to be center stage, and someone who really... Uh, has a lot of power, personal power. I'd say that a good growth path is to be a little more silent, a little more um, less impactful. Right. This is the sexual aid is someone who's more emotional, more passionate. There's a lot of action and passion, and maybe not it's as the much... most controversial of all aids. Sure, it can be. Yeah. 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 I think that being quieter and a little less controversial and, and just softer. It's, right. is a good growth path. Let, letting others share the stage, let's say. And if you're if you're a sexual eight and you're just saying, that's impossible when I suggest this, this is exactly what you need to do. And it's a good indication that you are indeed a sexual eight. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know that the subtypes don't want to negotiate with us. They say, no, this is who I want you to be. They form our identity for us. And what we need to do is to break that identity, break away from that identity. And we need to do the opposite, little by little. Do it a few times. But let's move on. Should we talk about nines? Sure. With type nines, each of the three subtypes is based on the person focusing on something different as a way to distract from themselves. So if you're a nine, 
you focus on other people, but not so much on your own agenda, your own feelings, your own opinions, uh, your own anger. There's a way that nines go to sleep to their anger and they distract themselves from themselves in other ways. The self-preservation nine is a person who uh, focuses more attention on comfort, on distracting themselves by routine activities, uh, physical comforts, and they ground themselves through that. This is a nine that uh, likes to be alone a little bit more than the other two nines. The self-preservation nine is a nine who uh, is more grounded, a little more irritated, a little more eightish, uh, harder to move, more stubborn, uh, but and but likes to really focus on what makes them comfortable as a way of distracting from themselves. And this is why um, we believe that uh, self-preservation nines who are committed to self-developing need to get rid of physical comfort, uh, little by little, uh, and also be a little less concrete in life and be a bit more um, abstract. Yeah, less practical and a little more theoretical, metaphysical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the social nine is a nine that distracts themselves from themselves by focusing on the group. It could be community, family, uh, any kind of group. Uh, Social nines tend to be very hard workers. They work really hard in service of the group, whatever group they're in, and don't let anyone see how hard they're working. The social nine is someone who is uh, wanting to feel a sense of belonging and oftentimes they don't feel like they belong and so they're working hard to earn a sense of belonging but of course this is a subtype personality strategy and so it goes or takes us around in circles by definitions so the social nine wants to belong and works really hard but never really feels like they belong and there's often a sense of sadness underneath for the social nine because they can even look like a three they're working so hard they're one of the big workaholics of the enneagram but they tend to really not focus on themselves and not put themselves in the picture right just i I believe see if you agree that the sadness is mostly unconscious for most social nines yeah now the growth path is uh in my view um working less making less efforts also um staying more alone not needing to be among other people all the time and being a bit more controversial when participating in a group discussion of any kind like going against people that that would really help social nines develop right social nines tend to be very congenial and friendly they make great leaders but to be in a group and to express a contrary opinion or to even be able to tolerate more conflict, even cause some, would be great for a social nine. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the sexual nine. So the sexual nine uh, is a nine that uh, is called fusion sometimes. It's a nine that really merges with other people, that focuses on an, a significant other, an important person in their lives. Uh, as a way of distracting from themselves. So sexual nines report, it's as if there's no boundaries between them and someone else. And so they may take on the feelings, attitudes, behaviors, opinions of that important person they merge with and not really know they've done it, not really know that their opinions aren't really theirs, that they've 
almost found a sense of purpose in someone else because it's hard to find their own sense of purpose to be grounded in their own experience. This is the most emotional nine. And when they're in relationship, for instance, it can be really hard for them to find them their own sense of who they are. Uh, and it can be especially hard, let's say, if the relationship isn't going well for them to separate from that person. Yeah, and uh, I think the growth path has to do with having moments of separation, like being away from the significant other uh, for some time, having a life of your own, and having other relationships like friendships, um, and and also you know trying to go against a little bit uh, against that uh, significant other. Now, I just want to say that the social nine is the counter type, right, B? Yes, the social nine is a counter type. And the same for the eight that we forgot to mention. Yes, right? I think I mentioned it, yeah. Oh, you did, okay. Yeah, the social eight is the counter type, yes. Yes, so both socials. The three subtypes of type one are very interesting, I think. Uh, the self-preservation one is the true perfectionist. The social one as Naranjo said, is perfect in that they figure out the right way to be or the right way to do something and they model that for others. And the sexual one it perfects other people. The sexual one is more of a reformer than a perfectionist. So the self-preservation one is the perfectionist in that they see themselves as very imperfect and in, a, in need of a lot of perfection. They also try to perfect everything around them. They're very detail-oriented. Uh, oftentimes, the self-preservation one in childhood had to provide stability for the whole family. So for that reason, the self-preservation one has more anxiety. Uh, the name is worry. And so in addition to repressing anger, which they do the most of the three ones, so that such that they actually look warm and friendly because reaction formation is the defense mechanism. And when self-preservation ones repress their anger, uh, they it turns into warmth through uh, being because they're more unconscious of their anger and they express something that's the opposite, which is friendliness or warmth or politeness. Yeah, and I think a good growth path for this subtype would be messing things up a little bit and also being a little less perfectionist or even going against uh, the orderly way things are, you know, done, uh, breaking uh, routines. Right, you know. which is really hard for the self-preservation yeah. one because they're the most self-critical. Yeah. They're, they're more self-critical than they are critical of others. Yeah, just want to say, do that a little bit in the beginning. If you're uh, more advanced on the path, you need to do that more. But do some of these uh, growth paths if you really want to self-develop. Right, if you're using the Enneagram as a growth tool, as it should be used. Yes. So the social one is a bit different in that they, instead of like being a perfectionist that is trying to perfect every little thing in their environment, it's more like they focus on how to do things the right way. And they tend to see things in terms of the right way to do something. It's as if they do research and try to learn a lot so that they can figure out the right way. And they're less anxious than the self-preservation one because it's as if they can relax when they've found the right way because they'll just keep doing it that way. They also tend to see themselves 
often unconsciously, as role models or teachers for others. And this is, in a way, the service that they're performing for the group is that it's like, I've found the right way to do something. Now I'm going to show you how to do it. Now, for the self, for the social one, they would never see themselves as being superior or more perfect than others. However, other people can see them as a little bit superior because it's as if I'm teaching you the right way to do something. Yeah, this this is a good description. And I, the suggestion uh, for social ones in the growth path is to be a, a role model that's not too good for people and, and to be a bad example at times. Yeah, the social one can be a bit rigid because they feel like they're the owner of the truth and they know the right way. And it can be unthinkable for them to do it the wrong way, mm -hmm. for instance. Yes, and uh, you can notice that B and I are all about transformation using the Enneagram. This is why we are suggesting these growth paths. This is not only about finding out your subtype. It's about how to, to raise above Uh, the subtype to rise above. rise above yeah right and if you're a social one it's important to recognize that you you repress your anger halfway such that you can be a little cool or cold and the social one's a more intellectual type and a bit more rigid or non-adaptable the sexual one is a one that represses anger the least and for this reason the sexual one is the counter type of the three ones it's a little bit counterintuitive because anger is the passion of type one but Both the self-preservation and the social one repress their anger, and the sexual one is the only one that lets it out more. Now, the sexual one is still represses anger, tries to control it at least part of the time. But usually sexual ones are the one ones that say it's actually okay to be angry. Yeah, uh, they they are not eights. They are not always externalizing anger. Right. They still uh, keep uh, resentment and anger inside, right. but they are different from the other uh, two subtypes of one uh, in that they sometimes are okay expressing anger. Right. They're They're more zealous about teaching people or perfecting others. Uh, they're reformers. They're people who are trying to reform other people, reform society. It's as if they're externalizing this sense of the right thing to do. Sometimes it's as if they have a connection to a higher moral authority, like I know the right way and I'm going to teach you how to do it. I'm going to make you be better. I'm going to fix things out there. And they feel a little entitled to do that. Right. And the growth path is to follow more what other people are saying and doing instead of, you know, being the one in charge and giving orders and, and being okay with how the other person is and what the person is doing, just taking it easy. And maybe others. looking at yourself a little bit more because sometimes sexual ones can be more critical of others than they are of themselves, although most sexual ones say they're still pretty self-critical. Let's do a short break. Have you already subscribed for B and Yeranu's YouTube channel? Go to YouTube and search for Chestnut Pies and click on like and subscribe. Become a member now at Chestnut Pies online for a lot more Enneagram content from B and Uranio. Sign up for the annual plan and get access to hundreds of audio files, videos, monthly online classes, articles, and even full online Enneagram workshops. It's a great value. Visit www.cpenneagram.com. 
If you like this podcast, visit www.cpenneagram.com for much more great Enneagram content. The Enneagram 2.0 podcast goes live every other Thursday on all main platforms. Stay tuned to learn more about yourself and others. Please click on like to help spread the word about our podcast. Thanks for listening. Each of the three twos expresses a different angle on seduction because pride in twos makes it hard for them to be aware of their own needs and certainly hard for them to express it and ask for help. Now, when that happens, it means you need to, in some ways, charm other people into meeting your needs, meet others' needs as a strategic way to um to, to affect others such that they meet your needs in reciprocal fashion. So seduction is a big thing for type twos, but each of the three subtypes does it in a different way. So the self-preservation two seduces like a child in the presence of grown-ups. What does that mean? That means it's like, I'm charming, I'm fun-loving, I'm cute, I'm sweet. Don't you want to take care of me? And the self-preservation two has a secret desire, and let me tell you, this is my subtype, and it was very unconscious for me, uh, uh, to be taken care of by others. Um, I did not see the dependencies that I was actually creating on others when I first learned my type, and so it was a big learning for me that although I thought I was independent, as a self-preservation too, I was the teacher's pet, I was trying to be sweet and pleasing and fun to be around so that others would like me and take care of me. Yeah, so it's uh, the growth path is both about asking for help in what they really need and uh, making sure that they grow up and do a few of those things themselves and as adults. Yeah, stepping into your power and not making yourself small is the growth path. And at the same time, asking for other people to help them do that. Right, exactly. So the social two is very different. It's a more adult two. It's a more leader type, a powerful person. And if you're going to seduce a whole group, you need to be more influential. That means being more important. Social twos often say they have a really easy time in front of a group, speaking in front of a group. And I know for me, that was not easy in the beginning when I first started to speak in front of groups. And the social two is a two that gives to get the most, that is the most strategic, uh, that is a little bit more influencing through being competent, powerful, important, knowing the right people, things like that. Yeah, I think social twos need uh, to spot how they manipulate and how they use behind the scenes uh, strategies and maneuvers to get what they need. And they need to stop Uh, doing that, you know, those political games, and they need to really stop trying to be influential also, and just be. Yeah, social twos look a little bit like eights, and they need to do a little bit of what eights need to do to grow, get more in touch with their vulnerability and and say that more in a real way. I also like when you uh, remind social eights that they are very controlling. It's not that easy for them to acknowledge. I can always tell a social two who's done a lot of work on themselves because they readily admit how controlling and manipulative they are, even though, of course, they're also embarrassed about it. And I have some of that in myself, too, I might say. It's my second in my sequence. Mm-hmm. So the sexual two is a two that seduces in a more classical sense. It's as if they focus 
a lot on one person. And it's a lot about uh, romance. It's a lot about, uh, it's almost like a femme fatale character where there's a lot of emotion and a lot of expression of generosity, a lot of wanting to be special and attractive and appealing. It's as if um, I'm the best a partner you're ever going to have. I'm the best friend you could have. Uh, and so it's a lot of really uh, focusing a lot on a, on another person. They tend to be good at flirting, uh, seducing them into relationships so that they'll meet your needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the growth path is being less attractive at times, you know, not dressing up as much or just being more, uh, you know, simple. Find, finding ways to meet your own needs or getting needs met by a bunch of different people, not just that one particular important person. Three subtypes of type three. I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear about the self-preservation three and the sexual three because really the social three is the three that's most often written about in books. So the self-preservation three is a three that not only wants to look good and be successful, but wants to be good, wants to do things in a in a sort of a, a right way, a morally right way. And because of this, they can look like ones. They're the biggest workaholics on the Enneagram. And while they want to have a good image, part of being good means not being vain or not being uh, too self-promoting. So these are threes that feel a little bit embarrassed about wanting to have a good image or wanting to be seen as successful. And while they're very driven and very productive and they work really hard and it's hard for them to slow down and they're focused on material security, which means it's sort of like uh, double duty when it comes to being productive, uh, they tend to be a little bit more modest than the average three. And the growth path here is to slow down pace, at least little by little, and also to not have goals for a few things and to take it easy uh, on goals. Right. And the social three is uh, more of a three that likes to be on stage, that wants the applause of the crowd. Uh, It's more competitive three, a more aggressive three, a three that really wants to win, uh, and a three that is in some ways a person who has a flawless image, is very good at selling whatever product they're selling or marketing themselves, uh, and looks really good, knows the right things to say, uh, is very good at climbing the social ladder. Yeah, and this is why um, a good growth uh, challenge for social threes is to share a few things that are not uh, the nicest ones about you. Like um, that, you know, will not add to your positive image. Um, Maybe, you know, little by little, again, um, but being true to yourself. And when you do that, if you're a social three, make sure that you don't uh, start producing an image of someone who's better in doing inner work. You know, it's always uh, tricky. Right. And then the sexual three is a three that focuses much more on relationships. It's like a it's a three that looks a bit like a two uh, who both focuses a lot of attention on being attractive. So folk bringing people toward them that will want to be in relationship with them and and see them as uh, appealing, but also someone who supports other people a lot, who succeeds through the people they support. 
Right. So here, the growth uh, challenge is to um, not be so concerned about what that other important person thinks about you. And also talking to that person about things that are not the best in you. And uh, maybe also stop conveying the image of the perfect feminine or masculine person in, in whatever is considered the perfect that perfect in your current society or community. Right. And, and this is the most emotional of the threes, but also still hard to get in touch with true feelings. And so it's very important for this three to get in touch with sadness, especially the sadness associated with people not seeing who they really are. Because all of us need to be in touch with all emotions, even yes. if they are hard. It's important for our development to be in touch with all four emotions. And for threes, it points the way back to who they really are, to the real self. And of course, they over-identify with a persona. Uh, and so it's really important for them to know who they are. Preservation four is a four that, well, all three fours have something they focus on around suffering because envy is the passion. And when we're envying others, when we're comparing ourselves to others, it's as if it creates a sense of suffering, like there's something wrong with me, something other people have that I don't have. And self-preservation fours internalize this sense of suffering. It's like they're long suffering. Social fours suffer, they're more in their suffering, kind of wallowing in suffering. And the sexual four, the one-to-one four, makes other people suffer. That is, they externalize their suffering. They, it's as if they don't want to suffer, and so they say, it's because the world isn't meeting my needs or isn't seeing me clearly and understanding me. So the self-preservation four is a four that... Uh, is someone who makes a virtue of tolerating a lot of suffering without complaining. It's a four that keeps the, the suffering inside. Usually they got a message in childhood that it wasn't okay to express their painful feelings, but of course fours are in touch with a lot of dark feelings uh, like sadness or melancholy or pain, but the self-preservation four has a high pain tolerance and isn't always in touch with it and also holds it inside. They usually say they don't really share their feelings with others. They have a sunny exterior. They can look happy on the outside. Sometimes they get even mistyped as sevens, but they look a little more like threes or ones in that they work really hard. They don't really register envy. They just try to prove themselves by uh, being tough and strong. Uh, and so they tend not to be so in touch with envy. Yeah. It's very important to understand this four, which many people don't talk much about. Um, and the growth path here has to do with acknowledging the pain and the suffering in the inside, to look at it, and also to, to express that. Uh, that would represent going against the masochistic tendency. Um, and uh, we sometimes say that self-pressed force need to complain more. And it's even a good thing, uh, it might, might sound weird, but it's a good thing for self-pressed force to be a little bit more the victim in things because uh, they try to avoid that role out of their <laughs> Yeah, which of course trying. they hate to hear. Yes. So social fours. Social fours are more in touch with suffering. They are more in their suffering. They're more sensitive or even oversensitive. They're very in touch with their emotions. And they'll tell you about their emotions, whereas self-preservation fours 
often say they hardly tell anyone about how they feel, maybe a couple people they trust. Social fours will tell you all about it. They take more of the victim role and they focus more on comparing themselves to others and feeling inferior, feeling on the bottom side of that comparison. This is why the the growth stretch is the opposite of uh, self-press force. They need to be less the victim. They need to complain less. And they need to say good things about themselves. And uh, we sometimes joke, you need to cope with the fact that perhaps you are happy and you don't have problems. And they usually don't like to hear that or see it in themselves because they really focus on their inferiority. And unlike self-preservation fours that are more masochistic, social fours are the more or more dramatic. Uh, they can over-dramatize how they feel or be over-identified with their darker, more painful feelings. Right. Although the sexual four can be quite dramatic also, right? Of course. Those two fours are more dramatic, but in different ways. Yeah. So sexual fours. So the sexual four makes other people suffer. Uh, and that means they complain more. They can be more demanding. But it's just another defense. And the defense is instead of internalizing suffering, they externalize it. In other words, it's too painful to feel shame or to feel deficient or a sense of lack or suffering. And so it's as if they externalize the suffering. They're suffering because the world doesn't understand them or other people around them aren't meeting their needs or seeing how special they are. And sexual fours express envy and its manifestation as competition. And we should say that the countertype of fours is self-preservation, just like the countertype of all the heart types actually is self-preservation, the self-preservation two, the self-preservation three. But the sexual four is a four that is angrier, more in touch with anger than the other two fours. It's if the social four is the sad four, the sexual four is the mad four. And this the sexual four expresses envy and its manifestation is competition. So When fours compare themselves to other sexual fours, they wind up on the top of that comparison and they can see themselves as better than or more special than other people. And the problem they have is that other people don't recognize that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the growth uh, suggestion here for sexual fours is to not compete as much and to stay quieter and not complain. And by not complaining, uh, they would have another task of uh, digging deeper um, underneath the anger and find the sadness or the fear and stay in touch with those feelings and not only the anger. Right. One of our friends used to say when she would go to therapy, she would need to be angry for the first 45 minutes so she get, could get in touch with her pain in the last five minutes. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for sexual fours to get in touch with that pain underneath yeah. uh, the other feelings that are more comfortable to feel. The self-preservation five is a five that focuses on boundaries and having private space and being able to withdraw to a place of safety or sanctuary or refuge. The social five focuses more on knowledge, on seeking knowledge, learning, uh, relating to others who also are learning and know things about a field of interest that they're interested in. And the sexual five is a five that focuses more on relationships and has more uh, contact with their emotions and has more of a need for intimacy under the right conditions. 
So the self-preservation five is actually, interestingly, a warm five. And this is because there's kind of a paradox when you have better boundaries, when you're more focused on being able to protect yourself, uh, you can be a little more open. And the self-preservation five is a five that communicates the least, that needs a private space, usually in their home where they go to be alone, that they know they can always withdraw when they need to, uh, and is also a five that um, doesn't need to doesn't want to need other people that much it's like they minimize their needs and they don't ask other people for that much they don't communicate much about what's going on like a minimalistic drive in life right yeah so the growth task here is almost to invite for invasion uh, it's like opening up your house and call people in um, which is not easy but doable right right, right. Then the social five, and you know a little bit of something about this subtype, right? A little bit. Yeah, the social five is a five that um, focuses on super values or high ideals uh, and, and the people that he or she shares those ideals and values with. Uh, they focus more on knowledge and information. It's as if the intellect is omnipotent uh, and they can be very focused on a kind of sense of in-group and out-group. Uh, and the in-group is someone who shares their ideals, who uh, knows about the things they know about, and they can be very connected to these people, even if at a distance, and even more connected than they are to people in their everyday life, because they're very focused on causes and the collective and on learning something about the, the fields of knowledge that are very central to them. Yeah, good description. Uh, as a social five myself, I think the a good growth task uh, for social fives is to value other things, uh, I, I mean, things other than knowledge, uh, you know, simple things in life, um, and also relationships um, being more important than the ideals behind them, or uh, relationships not only as means, but also as an end. Um, social fives need to to uh, appreciate more, the, you know, the simpler side of life. In my right. view, finding meaning in relationships and emotional connection, and not just in knowledge or through through yeah. the intellect. And a good idea at times is is to make sure you don't know something, uh, and show uh, others that you don't know that. Sounds like you might have a lot to learn from a type two business partner. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Lucky I, I'm you. I'm always learning from you, B. <laughs> I hope you're lucky. a little bit lucky also. Oh, yes, I definitely am. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, we're opposites. And that, that provides a lot of opportunities for learning. Yes. So the sexual five is a five that has more, more connection to their emotions um, but usually not in a way that they show on the outside. Usually it's very internal. Uh, they like to go deeper with people. They're looking for deeper relationships. They're looking for the high ideals that the social five looks for in the realm of knowledge in relationships. So it's almost as if they're looking for the ideal relationship or a kind of mystical union or an ideal of, of uh, close friendship or close relationship. And this is a five that feels emotional on the inside, but sometimes communicates that through some sort of artistic medium. Uh, and 
again, is very focused on finding like the perfect relationship, but sometimes that's a relationship they can't find. So there's a lot of testing, a lot of needing the other person to be very open so that they can be open themselves, but it's wanting to go deeper with people. Yeah. One good growth task for sexual fives, in my view, is to be okay with an okay relationship, like not try not to idealize too much what is what the best relationship would be and and just you know find a relationship that's healthy and and you know good enough um, and when that happens stop the push pull mechanism we we sometimes say that force have the push pull mechanism which is true but sexual fives have, have uh, quite a bit of that also So being in a simpler relationship is quite healthy. Right, and having like more friendships and not just that one important person. Yes, but also when it's an intimate relationship, understand that that relationship uh, doesn't need to fulfill all you need. You can find, you know, things in French friendships and, and other relations, uh, not only that one. Uh, so it, it's basically avoiding overloading the intimate relationship with uh, so many ideals you have. Three sixes are most distinct from one another of almost any of the types, except maybe four. The self-preservation six is a six that is the six that kind of wants to run away and hide. They're the most in touch with fear, the most actively fearful. And they their way of coping with fear is by trying to attract allies, friends, and protectors. It's as if they feel like they can't make it on their own. They need someone to protect them. The issue here is separation anxiety. And the self-preservation sixes feel like they can't really protect themselves on their own. They're also the most doubting and questioning of the three sixes. They can question everything. They have a lot of questions. They ask a lot of questions, and they don't answer very many. These are people who doubt everything. They can even doubt their doubt. They're looking for certainty, but hardly ever finding it. Yeah, so the growth challenge here is to stop making, uh, asking so many questions and start uh, making affirmations. Um, and at the same time, going alone to do whatever you need to do, well, not only depending on others. And, and learning to be more confident and more mm -hmm. courageous and mm -hmm. owning their strength more. Yeah, for all sixes, but even more so for self presses, the a good hint is to go to action sooner, in, instead of just trying to be certain about what's going to happen. And they're the least aggressive of the sixes, so it's also good to get in touch with anger. What about social sixes? Social sixes are a little bit the opposite from the self-preservation six when it comes to uncertainty and ambiguity. It's as if the self-preservation six sees everything in terms of gray and they don't want to say anything black is black or white, whereas the social six thinks more in terms of black and white. And the way the social six copes with fear is by finding a good authority and then following the rules and guidelines and reference points of that authority. Now, this authority doesn't need to be a person. It can be a, a system of thinking or an ideology, an impersonal authority. It can be science or rational thinking. And social sixes tend to be very intellectual. They always want to learn things or seek knowledge when they're afraid. Uh, and they tend to be more in their heads and less in their instincts and intuition and emotion. Yeah. Uh, 
so what is the growth task here? Actually, my wife is a social six and I many times tell her she needs to be a little less responsible, a little less, you know, the, the one uh, who's in charge of uh, being a problem solver. And also she needs to be more intuitive and less rational. I think that most social sixes are highly intuitive, but they go against it. Right, because the and the name of the six is duty, so they can be very dutiful, as you said. Now, the sexual six is the counterphobic six. This is the six that goes against fear with strength. And so the coping strategy here is to not be very aware of fear and to be scary yourself, to be intimidating and strong in the face of fear. Yeah, so social, uh, sexual sixes need to be less scary. They need to come up with, um, you know, a softer uh, uh, face or uh, an appearance of being uh, gentle, peaceful and uh, soft instead of being aggressive. Right. And this is the six that um, tends to go to aggression instead of being afraid and is the biggest contrarian, the biggest rebel, can really go against authority mm. in a big way. And they actually look like eights, yeah. whereas social sixes look more like ones or threes and self-preservation sixes can look like twos because yes. they're warm and friendly. And it's so interesting because a self-pressed six needs to be less nice and more aggressive and the sexual six need to be nicer softer and look a bit more like a self-press sex exactly you know being being a, a bit more calm and so they can be really different and again a good example of how the growth paths can be completely opposite even for the, someone of the same type when they have different subtypes the self-preservation seven is a seven that's very practical that focuses on creating opportunities for themselves, on getting what they need, often through a network of allies or friends. Uh, Naranjo said it's like they have a good mafia. Uh, they know where to go, who to consult when they need something. And this is a subtype who has gluttony for pleasure and gluttony for good opportunities. And they're good at creating wealth and getting what they want um, and finding opportunities for pleasure or ways to do different things and make things happen uh, by uh, consulting whoever they might need to consult or manifesting whatever they might need to manifest. They're very practical people. I'd say that the growth challenge for self-pressed sevens is to be uh, a, a little more empathetic and to look at others first and to be less self-referencing, uh, not to be opportunistic in a way. Right. The social seven is a very interesting seven. It's the counter type of the three sevens. And it's a seven that senses, unconsciously of course, that in gluttony, which is the passion of the seven, there's a bit of a, a tendency to be self-interested. And potentially when you're wanting to get more from yourself, for yourself, a little bit of a tendency to exploit others. It's as if there's a there are pieces of cake and you want to take the biggest piece of cake for yourself, but then social sevens decide to go against this and take the smallest piece of cake. And so these are people who want to make the world a better place for others. And it's as if they get into careers or 
they do things to be of service and to take away the pain of the world or like to martyrs. Or even people like doctors or nurses or chaplains, people who try to alleviate other people's pain. Yeah. So another example here of how two subtypes of one type can be very different. Uh, the hints here are the opposite of the ones we gave uh, self-pressed sevens. Uh, social sevens need to learn how to be a bit more individualistic or um, op even opportunistic. Well, social uh, sevens tend to feel a taboo on selfishness. Yeah, so they need to be a little more selfish. Exactly. To grow up. Right, because they tend to always go against that sense of, they tend to be fearful of being too self-referencing, and so they tend to sacrifice for others. Yes. What about sexual sevens? Be? Sexual sevens are sevens that are kind of the opposite of the self-preservation seven in that they're not very practical. They're more dreamers. They live in their imagination. They're the most optimistic, the most enthusiastic, the most positive. It's as if they live in a world of their imaginations where everything is really, really amazing, really, really great. Uh, and they, it's as if they go into their imagination as an unconscious way of avoiding what's happening in, in reality. It's as if they are wearing rose-colored glasses. And th the name here is suggestibility. And they can be a bit naive because they want to see things in such positive terms. And they tend to deny reality a little bit. They don't want to be in touch with what's really happening in stark, ordinary reality in case it's uncomfortable or it's not so great. Yeah. So sexual sevens need to be more um, concrete, um, more realistic, and, um, you know, just see the hard side of things and things that can uh, perhaps not go too well and be a bit more focused on, on practical stuff. Right, exactly. They need to get out of the dreams and the future visions and uh, take the risk of being in everyday reality and trusting that that will be okay. So now it's time for our top five. What's our top five today, Uranio? So B, today our top five is the five most angry, angriest types or subtypes on the Enneagram. And what I mean is uh, the angriest outlook, how uh, types that look like being angry in the personality level. So they're expressing their anger. Is that what you're saying? Maybe yes. they're not just angry inside. They're actually obviously angry yes. or expressing anger so, the most. Uh, expressing anger in a direct way that is perceived by others this way. Okay. To be angry. So what's your number five? Uh-huh. So I think... Um, my number five, I was in a doubt between two uh, subtypes here, but I ended up choosing self-preservation eight. Uh, the other type I was considering was social two, with, uh, who I think can be angry at times, but I chose self-press eights, uh, who are angry, but in my view, not uh, all the time. They, they get angry when they feel like it's needed for something concrete. What about you? What's your fifth? Well, I had the same one for my number five, mm. self-preservation eight, for, wow. for much the same reason. Mm. Okay, so I think it's the first time we agree. Yes, I think oh. it might be. Okay, what's your fourth? My fourth is sexual six. 
Wow, I can't believe it. And we just mine also. Wow, <laughs> we're getting into a mind meld situation wow. here. Yeah, sexual six, of course, because they can be very angry when they feel fearful. A lot of sexual sixes will express aggression rather than fear. Uh-huh. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that sexual sixes uh, at times express anger a little more often even than self-press eights. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and here I was trying to think of how often these people express anger. Yes, you know? me too. And what is your third? I my, suspect it's the same as mine also. My third? It's going to be amazing if we get all five the same this time. Mm, maybe um, we won't. Let's maybe see. we won't. So my number three is sexual one. Bingo. <gasps> yes. Oh, sexual I, I'm one. I'm so surprised. Yes. Sexual one, yes, because Why? Why? well, I, they're the angriest one, and uh, I actually find it sort of. It, I like sexual ones, and the way <laughs> sometimes they'll explain they can't really hold their anger in. Other ones are really holding it in, but sexual ones will really let it fly sometimes, and often it feels like righteous anger, like it's zealous righteous anger in behind a, a, a righteous cause. Right. I, I chose sexual ones because. They express anger somewhat often, but even when they are not uh, expressing anger verbally, they are conveying <laughs> anger yes. in a non-verbal way. Good so point. I think they 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 do anger more than sexual success. Yeah, I agree. Good point. Now, why don't you say your second and first, and then I tell you mine? Okay, it's going to be quite something if we have all five the same. I don't think we will. Okay, so my number two is sexual eight. And my number one is sexual four. Yeah, and I I have those uh, the other way around. Ah. So sexual four as my second, and sexual eight as my first. Ah. So why don't you argue for your case first? Yeah, well, I, I think sexual four is the angriest type of all 27. Um, and again, it's maybe important to to say here that when when we're talking about anger, I don't see anger as a bad thing. And I think you may agree with me. I agree with We you. all need to be in touch with all our emotions. And anger is only a bad thing yes. when we act it out in, yeah. in, in ways that harm ourselves or other people. And I, I really thank you for bringing this up because we need to um, not to uh, think of anger as negative. Only. Right, right. It's healthy to be in touch with anger yes. as long as you're getting in touch with it and expressing it in conscious ways. So, um, so, so I don't want anyone to think that uh, if you're listening to this, that there's anything wrong with being angry exactly. and, and that there's anything wrong with sexual aids or sexual force. So I think sexual aids, um, they don't, they, they aren't, they aren't always angry. They aren't angry as often. I think with sexual four, anger is often a response to not feeling understood. And I think they don't feel understood a lot. And of course, when they get angry, then people often misunderstand them even more. And when I, uh, sometimes when I'm coaching people, I find that I even get called in to coach people, especially in organizations who are dealing with a sexual four, often one that's not very conscious. And of course, another thing that needs to be said is uh, when people are less conscious, of course, they create more problems for themselves and others and the personality. Uh, but I think the sexual aid is an angry type and they can express it. And But I, I just think that the sexual four is angry more often um, and, and it's a more regular uh, experience for them to externalize their anger and express it to others. I just—that's just my sense—is that it becomes 
uh, more of a problem. Sometimes sexual eights don't need to get angry. They just influence the situation by being powerful or exerting control without anger. I totally get all your points. And I am aware that Claudio Naranjo used to say that the sexual four was the angriest uh, type right. uh, or subtype of the 27. Yeah. But I, I decided uh, to have sexual weight as my first. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you why. Uh, and again, it's not a competition. Uh, we don't need to agree. It's just offering different perspectives here. Um, in my view, uh, sexual aids are aggressive when they are being controversial and when they are going against someone's opinions or bringing up a theme that will not be easy for people to talk about. They are provoking all the time. And I perceive that as, as anger also. I and I think that if we take that into account, anger is extremely um, frequent. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost all the time. Um, and I think that uh, sexual force at times stop being angry when people push back. Like if people are angry at them uh, as, as, um, as a consequence of their anger, they, they don't engage in conflict as much as the sexual aid. Once I had a client, a business client, who's a sexual four, uh, who said to me, you know, the way I found out I'm a four and not an eight is that if people get angry at me, I stop. And I feel the fear in the inside. Yeah, so these are a few um, reasons why I chose a sexual eight as my number one. What, what do you think? I think it's a very good, well-reasoned, if lengthy explanation, but I still think I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I should include self-breast choosing. <laughs> I'm not angry. I just think I'm right. And I still respect your opinion. Yes, yes. Okay. I, I'll wonder about that and I may change my mind. Okay. I don't know. Well, this has been the Enneagram 2.0 podcast. Uh, please join us again next time as we talk about all things Enneagram. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Please click on like to help spread the word about our podcast. Thanks for listening. 